From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Bimadi Wunmi, in for Ira Glass. My younger cousin Camille is not really a dog person, but there is one dog she adored. Her name was Foxy, because she looked exactly like a fox, except she was black. She was the neighbor's dog, but she and Camille seemed to have a real kinship, maybe because they both weren't very far from the ground. Camille was around four or five years old back then, and she had a little lisp, so Foxy came out as Foggy. I thought it was one of the cutest things I'd ever heard. The way Camille remembers Foxy, it's almost like a movie. Her memories feel like endless summer, hazy and perfect, like a scene shot on crackly film. I just remembered like the feeling of being excited to go and see Foxy. I have an image in my head of like coming to the house and I could see Foxy was like outside. I can see Foxy through the door that leads to the garden. There's a story about Camille and Foxy that I think about fairly often. I've talked about it with my sister for years, but never with Camille. And it's this. Once when they were playing, Foxy nipped at Camille. Nothing serious, just an excited kid playing with an excited dog. One minute, they were playing half under the coffee table in the middle of the room, and the next, they weren't. There was no need to go to the hospital or anything, but it was enough to startle Camille and to make her cry. But it's what happened after that I think about the most. The day after Foxy nipped her, Camille went right back to playing with the dog. But she would not go back to the place where the nip happened. If her feet unthinkingly moved her towards the coffee table, she'd redirect. She'd swerve her little body around it. Instead of avoiding the dog, she steered clear of the place. When I brought this up to Camille, she had no memory of doing it. Did anybody try? Did they, like, test me? Yes. Did they, like, put a tree in that area and I just would not go there? I mean, you, you're, talking the... like, you're talking like you're the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Did anyone, like, sit me down to talk about, like, oh, Camille, why don't you go to that corner? I don't know. That that suggests that we were mature enough to, to try and help you solve the problem. I think we just <laughs> found it funny that you avoided the, the area. I think we were all kind of like, watch this, watch yeah. this. And then we'd try and, like, get you to come around and then we'd laugh when you wouldn't, <laughs> which is very cruel in hindsight. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and even more curious... Camille still seems to have a hard time fathoming this, that Foxy, her beloved friend, could even unwittingly hurt her. 20-ish years later, she still won't let herself go there. <laughs> a part of me is like, you know, African parents, they like to over-exaggerate. She probably just licked me. She and didn't I lick didn't... you. <laughs> she didn't lick you. She definitely nipped you. But I love how see, see you're doing it again. You're recasting the past. You're like, no, did she? She did. Because it's weird. <laughs> it's weird that I don't remember it. It would be different if I'm like, I don't remember. Avoidance is a surprisingly common reaction to information that might knock us off kilter. Shying away from the things we cannot wrap our minds around. It's self-preservation. The world is so full of dangerous things, things that might hurt us if we look too closely at them. So we avoid, we circumvent, we choose not to go there. That's our show today, in three acts. People finding there's one place in their lives they simply can't access. For reasons that sometimes even they don't fully understand, there's just a mental keep out sign on the door. Do not look, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Stay with us. 
one, I could have grown big in Japan. Atsuko Okatsuka is a comedian, and she's incredibly close with her grandma, Yingxi. They talk several times a day, they're together every weekend, and Atsuko makes these incredible videos of herself dancing, while her grandmother plays incidental hype woman. Her grandma raised her, but for a while now, Atsuko's joked on stage that her grandmother stole her from her dad when she was little, and brought her and her mother from Japan to live in the U.S., from the outside, she looks like this sweet, unassuming old Asian woman, you know, but she's a liar. <laughs> she a liar. When I was eight, uh, she told me we were coming to the States for a two-month vacation, so I packed lightly, you know, and then we never left, you know. Yeah, true story, yeah, yeah. And, you know, till this day, we're still dealing with the kidnapping in our own ways. <laughs> but the truth is, Atsuko only has the sketchiest idea of what really happened. She doesn't really know how she ended up in America. Her family doesn't discuss it. Talking about it has been a no-go zone for her and her family. But recently, Atsuko decided to find out. Because my family doesn't talk about this, as a kid, all I knew was I was living in Japan, and suddenly I wasn't. I was separated from my dad and my friends. I was forced to go to school in America and learn English and start a new life. I went by Stacy for two months. It was jarring and confusing, and I blamed my dad for giving up on us and leaving us in America. Then as an adult, that shifted. I decided my grandma was the bad guy. She stole me away from my dad, and he was the victim. But I never asked anybody the hard questions to find out, you know, the actual truth. It was way easier to just talk about it on stage, where nobody could fight you on whether it's real or not. That's why I love stand-up. Nobody talks back to you. It's good for people who don't want to process feelings. And then my dad had a stroke. He survived it and is recovering, but it was kind of a wake-up call. Am I really going to never ask what happened with my move to the United States? I mean, it was the biggest event in my life. It completely changed everything. Time to get answers. Was I kidnapped? What really happened? I'm recording. Test, test. Okay. Okay. Oh, Grandma. Um, so I started with my Grandma, the perpetrator, and confronted her face to face. She and my mom live just 20 minutes away. Did you kidnap me? Oh, no. Did you kidnap me? No. That's what I tell audiences. When I perform, I say, yeah, my grandma pretty much kidnapped me. <laughs> She's saying in Mandarin, there's no such thing. I didn't kidnap you. When people kidnap a child, they demand money, ransom to return the child. But we didn't ask for that, so it doesn't count as kidnapping. <laughs> oh, okay. She didn't ask for ransom. She's still a kidnapper. She's just bad at it. She took a kid to raise for free. Can you imagine trying to negotiate with a kidnapper and you're like, please, how much money do you want? I just want my kid back. And they're like, oh, no. It's on me. Free. In fact, 
I'll take her to LA for you. I think she's going to be a star. I'm glad my grandma and I can joke about these things today. <laughs> We sat on a couch in her living room. I told her, I think our family has a habit of not speaking about difficult things. As we talk, my mom interrupts us from the top of the stairs. My mom lives with her. Okay, mom. She's asking my grandmother to please not talk about these sad things. It'll affect how I see my life. It won't. I asked her, I yelled. Don't say it, she says. Try not to talk about anything too sad. It's good to talk about the past. My mom goes back to her room. So a big reason why we don't talk about things is because of my mom. She has paranoid schizophrenia. And talking about sad things can trigger bad memories and the voices in her head. So anytime we want to talk about the past, we have to tiptoe around her. We whisper or just avoid it completely. And that's how our family has always done things. We didn't even talk about how my mom has schizophrenia. Like, as a kid, my grandma would just say, oh, your mom just has low blood sugar, she's hungry, when she was clearly wilding out, throwing plates at grandma. It's like, ah, uh, she needs professional help, not bread. I was eager to hear my dad's side of this. For starters, when they divorced, did he have custody of me? Because if he did, this seems way more like a real kidnapping. And did he even know that my grandma was taking me to the U.S.? We talked like once a month. We reconnected when I was 15. So I flew to Japan to see him. So we just came from my dad's house. Now we're at my elementary school. This is where I would go to school. When my dad and I see each other, we try to do as much as we can. He's up for anything, like getting on a big pink dog seesaw with me at the playground to shoot a little video. Reliving childhood, things we never got to do together. Hurry, have fun! I have all these memories of what it was like to live with my dad. I'd stay up and welcome him home from work. He'd make instant Japanese curry out of a bag for me. Then he would lay on his side on the floor and watch the news before bedtime. I would lay beside him, copying his pose. I wanted to be like him. We walk across the street from my old elementary school to an old apartment building. There was a period I lived here, in Japan, with my mom and grandma, separated from my dad. Me, my mom, and grandma lived right there. This unit was ours, in fact. It's crazy. After, after I divorced you, mother, yeah. father, I come here, a little drunk, and put him here, hundred liter. Really? Sometimes he would get drunk and just yeah. drop off a hundred dollar bills for little us. Drunk, yeah. I didn't know that. So. Because you miss I, me? I see pass you with you, so. Yeah, that's so sad. That's so sad. I miss you all the time. I love you so much. Yeah, I do. We head across the street. It's full of sad stories, but I guess I am too. 
I feel like I drink already. After I came to the U.S., there were seven years where my dad and I didn't see each other. He wrote me letters, but after a while, I couldn't read them anymore because my Japanese had gotten so bad. It made me too sad to know we couldn't really communicate anymore, so I stopped writing him back. Then, when I was 15, I asked him to come visit, and we've been talking ever since. But it's never been the same as when I used to lay next to him on the floor. Now I set him down to do an interview in my hotel room in Tokyo. I had an interpreter help us so our conversation might sound more formal than usual. We are very Japanese, and a stranger will do that to us. But it also helped us not cry as much, which is really cool, and also very Japanese. So when you and mom separated, what was the arrangement for how much you would see me. What was the custody situation? I'm curious about that. I have custody. Normally in Japan, when a husband and wife separate, the mother normally gets custody. But when we separated, your mom had a mental illness. So I thought, you know, Will your mom be able to take care of you, okay? So because I was worried about that, I deliberately got custody of you. Which means I was kidnapped. It's a kidnapping. I told you it was. But why did my grandma kidnap me? And why didn't he stop it? Before I get to his answer... I should probably explain a little about his relationship with my mom and how unusual it is. This is the part of the story I knew before I flew to Japan. So my mom and dad met through the speed dating event in Japan that my grandma signed my mom up for. She worried my mom was getting older and decided she was going to have to step in if my mom was ever going to find someone. She and my mom were in Taiwan, so they flew to Tokyo for the event. Yeah, both of them. My grandma has to tag along to everything. That way, she can make sure everything's perfect. That's where my parents met. After just a few dates, they got married. And it was great for a bit. Or so my dad has told me. Unfortunately for me, my parents both say their connection had a lot to do with lust. Which is cool. I think everyone should experience that in their lives. And honestly, talking about sex is the only time I've ever seen my mom really light up. It's kind of sweet, actually. She told me they'd go to porn theaters together and would make love listening to Elvis. And when they'd get into fights, my mom would accuse my dad of only wanting her for her body. Gross, I know. And then they'd do it even more. Ugh. I'm surprised I don't have siblings. I mean, I do, but they're from my dad's previous marriage. And that's who my mom moved in with. She became a stepmom to a boy and a girl. And it got pretty bad. I mean, my mom didn't know anybody in Japan. She had no friends. She didn't speak the language. She never even dated anyone before my dad. So then, to have to suddenly move in with a family and try to fit in, it was too much. My mom would get jealous whenever my dad paid attention to my half-siblings over her. My dad told me she would throw things at them and get wildly abusive. Like one time, on my sister's birthday, when she had her friends over, my mom came home and lost it at the side of the party. 
She threw my sister's cake across the room, kicked all her friends out, and then started pulling my sister's hair until my dad stopped her. So they divorced right after they had me. I don't even remember my parents together. After they split up, my mom and grandma went back to Taiwan, and I was living with my dad and his two kids. In Chiba, an hour outside of Tokyo. But now my dad tells me things I'd never heard. He says my half-siblings didn't really like me because of the way my mom had treated them. And that worried my dad. Your relationship with those two children was not very... I don't really want to say this, but those children were sometimes kind of bullied by your mom. I felt that if everybody lived together, that it would not be good. You might be fighting all the time. Sometimes he'd drop me off to live with his parents because of my siblings and because he was a single dad, already barely holding everything together with a full-time job as an engineer at a big company. And then sometimes my mom and grandma would take the three-hour flight from Taiwan and my dad would let them take me back to live with them for short periods. I was like a hot potato. Except in this game, everyone wanted me. So I was more like mashed potato? Anyway, I asked my grandma about this, but there's a lot of words I don't know in Mandarin, so I had an interpreter help me. Grandma told me how hard it was for her every time she'd see me, and then had to drop me off again at my dad's. I kept crying on my way to the airport. I cried all the way from Japan to Taiwan because I couldn't bear being away from you. They heard how mean my half-sister was to me, and they saw that my dad had to put me in daycare during the day. We saw you, how miserable you were. You seemed so lonely. So we decided without hesitation that we needed to take you with us. My dad explained what happened next. So one day, when I was in the first grade and living with him, we went out and ran into my mom and grandma, right in Chiba, where he lives. My dad was really surprised. We ran across each other by chance at the 7-Eleven supermarket. Then they said to me, Why don't we talk a little? I like that they just accidentally ran into him, like an ex who's not over the relationship. Like, oh my god, you shop here too? What are you doing here? And it's like, yeah, I live here. What are you doing here? You live in Taiwan. Anyway, he agreed to meet with them. So we went to my house in Chiba. It was the four of us. Myself, you, your grandma, and your mom. I'm not sure what exactly happened, but you, your mom, and your grandma went outside. And then none of you came back. So it was almost like they ran away, or they took you with them. It's stories like that that I, I think back about and worry like, oh my gosh, if I were you, I would be so upset. That, that's like an action movie, you know? It's like, that's kidnapping. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. They flew into Chiba from Taiwan, 
rented an apartment close to him, and took me away after running into my dad at a store. I gotta give it to them. That's commitment. I had no idea that's how much they wanted to be with me. Anyway, that was kidnapping number one. Almost like a rehearsal for the big heist that would come later. So I started living with my mom and grandma just a 15-minute walk away from my dad. In that apartment across from my elementary school, I think they stayed in Japan because they didn't want to disrupt my life too much, and they hoped my dad and mom might still get back together. But during first and second grade, they wouldn't let him see me. I missed him, knowing he was just close by, but I was too scared to ask what was really going on. I didn't want to upset my mom. Did you try to see me? When you were in elementary school for sports day, I knew that I could see you. So if I saw you were doing well and were healthy, I was just relieved. That's all I felt. I also felt like, you know, I shouldn't directly call out to you or hug you close, so I just watched you from afar. He told me he used to watch me through the side gate because he wanted to avoid running into my mom and grandma at the main entrance. I had no idea that went on, that he would watch me alone, afraid to call out to me. I wish he did. I missed him so much. I told my grandma my dad's version of the story and how sad he was when they took me away from him. Oh, I understand your dad because as a parent, it's impossible not to want to see your child. So we empathize with him. But our feelings were complex. Right? I told her, you know, I really like my dad, right? I suppose so, because you were a kind kid. But for us, it was complicated. We were scared that he would take you away. Also, your mom still resented your dad. That's why she didn't want you to see him. So it became like this. It went on like this for a year or two, and my grandma was realizing how hard it was to hold everything together. And my mom was getting a lot worse. Grandma says the divorce really changed something in her. It really crushed her. There was a period of time when she didn't, she wanted to hide and she didn't want to see anyone. What's strange is, um, I actually don't remember much of my mom from when we're in Japan. I feel like there's memories of me doing things with you, whether we're bicycling outdoors, you taking me to dance classes, me going to the park with you and my friends, and then separately me doing things with my dad. But I don't remember my mom being in the picture so much. What was she doing? What was her daily schedule like? She was just staying home all day. And just be alone? And she had no friends, right? 
Yes. That, like, how bad did my mom get? I remember the night where she did take out the kitchen knife and maybe threatened to harm herself or us. But what exactly happened that night again? There was one time late at night, she had a knife in her hand, and it looked like she might want to attack us. I was scared, so I got you out of the house on a bike, and we went around the neighborhood. We biked and biked around the neighborhood um, till very late before we went home. I mean, my mother would never hurt me. She says that I'm all she has. But that scared my grandma. It put her on high alert. But she couldn't ask my dad for help because she knew that would upset my mom. So she took charge, like always, and made a big decision. So I think that I have no way to protect you and your mom. I felt like I couldn't protect you and your mom on my own. But if we move to the U.S., I've got the help of my son and my daughter-in-law. So I decided to move all of us to the U.S. I feel so much for my grandma in this moment. I didn't know she moved us to America because she was scared for me. That she was feeling so alone and overwhelmed. But I also feel for my dad. Did he know we were moving? And if he did, why didn't he do anything about it? This is one of the things I most wanted to ask my dad about. I did not know we were moving to America. Did you know? Did I know from the very beginning? No, I didn't know. Grandma confirmed this. She didn't tell him. Not before we left. He realized it later. Right now, I'm almost about to cry a little. So basically, your grandma told me in a letter that you were really missing me. And that's when I think I knew you were in America. I really wanted to see you too. I have some feelings of guilt that as a child, because I love both mom and dad and grandma, I, I love everyone so much, you know, so... Sometimes I fear that in the past maybe I hurt your feelings if I said I wanted to go with mom and grandma. But I want you to know that I was just a confused kid who, didn't wa- who wanted to see everyone equally. So I want you to know that I always, always wanted to be with you too. Then my dad told me something that completely shattered everything I thought I knew going into this. He said that back then he thought maybe it was better for me to be with my mom and grandma. He was working all the time, and my siblings were mean to me. He felt he couldn't provide the best environment for me. And here were my mom and grandma so excited to have me, maybe I should be with them, he thought. That's why he didn't fight to keep me. This was all news to me. So I've never gotten angry about it, but I felt disappointed, naturally. 
I kind of felt it can't be helped. Your mom and grandma felt that even though I had custody, when they saw you, they just loved you so much that they wanted to be with you. And so they took you with them. I think those feelings are natural, so I didn't get angry. I admire how much you have empathy for other people. Thank you. Thank you, Atsuko. So right now, you're praising me. But if I really understood people's feelings, I wouldn't have made so many mistakes in my life. It's interesting that my dad thought he was looking out for my best interests by letting me go. It broke his heart. And mine too. But he did it for me. He could have confronted my grandma. Just like my grandma could have told him the truth about taking me to America. But this is one way they're similar. They avoid these conversations. Because when you converse, there's conflict. And my family, we don't like that. They could have done it, though. And they could have talked to me. I would have asked to go back to Japan. I would have asked to see both my parents equally. They could figure out the details from there. Summers in America... School year in Japan, maybe. Who knows? They're the adults. I was eight years old. Before we left for America, my friends from second grade in Japan threw a farewell party for me. But I thought it was just them being dramatic, because I was coming back. I liked the attention, though. We were at a McDonald's, and everyone brought me gifts. They also wrote me tons of letters, too, that I discovered years later in a box. They all said they were going to miss me. So pretty much all of Chiba knew I was leaving for good, except for me and my dad. It's like the Truman Show, directed by my grandma. I told her, when you brought me here without telling me or my dad, you knew we'd find out one day, right? Did you think about that? (laughs) I guess I thought whatever happens, happens. I just let everything unfold. Love that when it comes to intense things, my grandma's got like a surfer attitude about it. She's all, ride the wave, bruh. It's just America. But this is how she generally deals with stuff in life. She raised three kids on her own after her husband died. And she just pushes ahead and figures something will work out. It has to. For years, she supported her kids by teaching English in Taiwan without really speaking English. It was just another one of the scams she pulled. With a smile on her face and a few lies, she always figured it out. That's what she did with me. I was worried that you would feel upset. So I had to trick you. Sorry. I'm sorry. So you lied. And finally, when summer ended and she enrolled me in school in Los Angeles, that's when I realized we weren't going home. I started dreaming of being back in Japan, 
being with my friends, being with my dad. I had that dream every night. I didn't know about this. I'm sorry, I didn't know. I asked, did I cry? Or ask why we're still here? Did I tell you I wanted to see my dad? As far as I recall, you did not. I don't know how you felt deep down, but on the surface, you seemed okay. You were a very considerate and thoughtful child, and you probably didn't want to worry us. Maybe you were upset, but you didn't want to show us. The one thing that I didn't tell you, that I wasn't honest with you, was that we were moving to the U.S. and we would never come back to Japan. This is my biggest regret. It feels like I deceived you. I know you were upset at that time. I feel really bad about it. I'm sorry. I told her no need to keep apologizing. No need to be sad. Before I started these interviews, I thought either my grandma was the villain for stealing me from my dad, or that my dad was for deserting me once we got to the States. And it turns out the truth is, my grandma did take me away, and my dad could have done something to stop it. But he decided I'd be better off without him, which is so much sadder, and somehow feels worse. I just feel so bad for all of them. Thank you for answering that. And thank you for being with me today. And I, I love you so much. And thank you for everything you have ever done for me, Grandma. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Grandma tells the translator, Oh, thank her too. I am also very grateful for her. It's the least I can do. Maybe I have Stockholm Syndrome. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I confronted her about it recently. I was like, Grandma, did you kidnap me? Because that's what I tell people on stage. <laughs> she was like, hey, at least because I brought you to the States, you became a comedian, a successful one, you know? And I was like, keep going. <laughs> And then she backtracked. She was like, wait, but what if you didn't find comedy? What would you have done? And I was like, well, then I guess I'd have to uh, press charges, you know? <laughs> Atsuko Akatsuka is a comedian. You can watch her HBO special. It's called The Intruder. She's also currently on tour with her new show, tickets at atsukocomedy.com. This story was produced by Ira Glass with Miki Meek and Diane Wu. Coming up, a faraway planet and the alien whose spaceship just can't land there. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio, when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Bim Adewunmi, sitting in for Ira Glass. Today's program, 
the one place I can't go. All about the mental roadblocks that people set up to keep them from engaging with thorny issues. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show. Act 2, Killing Me Softly. My colleague Emmanuel Joji, he has a tale about something he avoids at all costs. Even though it seems to follow him everywhere he goes. It's been like this for years. Here's Emmanuel. What I'm about to tell you is not some funny story I tell at parties. In fact, I don't really talk about it at all. The thing I don't talk about is a song. I don't talk about it because for over 10 years, anytime I listen to, sing, hum, or even think about it, it gets stuck in my head. And when that happens, bad things happen to me, often immediately. I've lost keys, wallets, my social security card after listening to this song. I lost a relationship once, got dumped after it played in a coffee shop I was in. I'm not a superstitious person, but I truly believe it is the ultimate bad luck for me. Like, right before I sat down to write this, no joke, I made sure to renew my renter's insurance, just in case. Like, that's how seriously I take the song. The first time I heard it, I was a freshman in college. YouTube suggested it to me during a morning study session for a midterm I had later that day. I remember listening to it and feeling so happy. I was having a great day, and the song was my soundtrack. I remember that feeling staying with me for hours, hearing the song in my head as I took the midterm. It was still playing in my head a few days later when I got the results back and saw that I'd failed. At the time, I didn't blame the song. I was just like, well, that's what I get for taking a class about black holes. I moved on. In fact, I added the song to a long playlist I had. A few weeks later, when I was listening to music in the middle of the day after some classes, the song played, and I fell asleep while listening, slept through a work shift I had, and got fired for the first and only time in my life. I just need more sleep, I told myself. It's a coincidence. But then, months later, the next time the song came on, I found myself feeling weirdly on edge. I thought about skipping it. But just as quickly, I also thought, that's ridiculous. So I kept the song playing. Later that day, after a concert band rehearsal, I put my backpack down to help a friend move some chairs, and somebody stole it, presumably for the laptop inside. I went the rest of the semester without a personal computer. I was freaked out. You know how in horror movies there's always that moment where the happy couple finally realise they might not have booked a great weekend getaway at a cabin after all, and that the vibes are most definitely off? That's what it felt like. After that, even though I knew it wasn't rational, I tried to avoid the song. But it didn't work. The only bike accident I've ever been in happened after I heard it being played by a passing car. One time it came on during a long road trip, and the next time I stopped, I noticed a nail in one of my tyres. When I was preparing to run my first marathon, I was putting together a playlist, and my phone played a bit of the song before I could turn it off. A few hours later, my sister called me and told me, Emmanuel, our parents are getting divorced. The next morning, I forgot to bring my headphones to the race, and for the nearly five hours it took me to run the marathon, all I could think about were my parents, their marriage, and that song. 
which happens to be a sappy love song endlessly looping in my head. I know all of this sounds delusional. A couple of years ago, I tried to convince myself once and for all that the song was just a song, but it backfired spectacularly. I decided to play it every day for a month. I'd wake up, play the song, and then walk around the rest of the day telling myself not to worry. When nothing bad happened for three days, I felt relieved. And then on the fourth day, I suffered a freak wrist injury which plagued me for nine months. To make matters worse, because I'd played it so much, Spotify kept pushing me the song, like for months after the accident, because it thought I wanted to hear it. That year was by far the worst year of my 20s. My hair, which until that point was decently robust, started falling out aggressively. My longtime family cat died. I went through a massive breakup. My professional life was a mess. And I got COVID right before Christmas. So I spent my first ever Christmas completely alone. And it pushed me to do something I should have done years earlier. I added the group that sings the song to my Do Not playlist on Spotify, which is a shame because I really like the song. It is good with a capital G. It is one of those R&B disco ballads from the 70s that is so ridiculously happy, so positive. It makes you wonder if the 70s were the most optimistic Americans have ever been, or if things were actually so bleak artists had to make songs like this one. But yeah, no, I will not be playing you this song. Or naming it. It's poison to me. A skeptical friend of mine pointed out that yes, bad things happen when I hear the song. But don't bad things happen to all of us all the time? Maybe I just notice them when the song plays. He suggested I try to keep track of every unfortunate event I encounter without the song. So I could see, once and for all, there was nothing to this. And so I did it. I listed every tiny thing over the course of a couple of weeks. And I was surprised by how many there were, even if they were small. I cut myself on a metal can, accidentally got bleach on one of my favorite t-shirts, got into a never-ending back and forth with my health insurance over almost 20 claims they didn't want to pay. I spent half of a family wedding in the ER because a guest passed out at the reception. I know I'm supposed to look at that list and feel freed, feel finally able to listen to that song whenever I want. But, and don't judge me, all it did was convince me that lousy stuff happens to me a lot. So why would I risk playing this song and making it worse? I have nothing else like this in my life. I don't believe in astrology. I don't believe in luck. I don't believe that misfortune is God punishing you for your bad deeds. I know it's entirely possible that when I hear that tune, I freak out in a way that causes unpleasant things to happen to me. But this I believe, I have to stay away from this song. Emmanuel Joji is a producer on our show. Right after working on the final draft of this piece, he went for a run in the woods, got chased by a loose dog, 
and fell, bruising his ribs and busting his ankle. As of this taping, he is also homesick with strep throat. Act three, lost in space. This last story is about someone who spent her childhood craving a world that she could not find on Earth. So as an adult, she just created one. And it was perfect. Until she became the one person who couldn't go there. Lily Sullivan has the story. First, let me tell you about the world she created. It's called The Locked Tomb. It starts on an isolated planet. And it is a fundamentally dying monastery of a planet where there are pretty much only three people under 30. This is Tamsin Muir. She's the author of this series of science fantasy books, which begin on that sad planet. But they're also some of the most breezily gay books I've ever read. The blurb on the cover of the first book basically just says, lesbian necromancers in space. So I was in. Reading the first one was unlike anything I've ever read. Here's the first line. In the myriadic year of our Lord, the 10,000th year of the King Undying, the kindly Prince of Death, Gideon Nav packed her sword, her shoes, and her dirty magazines, and she escaped from the House of the Ninth. Gideon is a cavalier, which is kind of like a knight, but she's not like a classic knight. She refers to people as douchebags, and she's constantly saying things like, that's what she said. Unlike most queer books, there's barely any sex or romance or making out. The words gay, lesbian, queer never even show up. People are queer, but it's more like their personalities, their humor. It's just understood. And I'll just say, I'm sure these books aren't for everyone, but I love them. I read the first book one summer a few years ago. I was on vacation with a few friends, and we all got pulled into it at the same time. And it was like we all just fell into this kind of imaginary space that Tamsin had created. Kind of youthful and very gay, in a fun rather than oppressive way. Which, Tamsin says, is exactly what she'd hoped for. Tamsin says she wrote this book for her 17-year-old self, who really could have used books and worlds like this back then. Just ways to be queer that weren't inherently sad. Like the very mainstream LGBTQT stuff, it was miserable. And I was already miserable because if I wanted to read gay literature at the time, it was always like my sad coming out summer. And yeah, I, I didn't want to read my sad coming out summer for the umpty umpth time. I'd read it. It was good like the first 50 times. <laughs> what I really wanted was a big set piece fight. I wanted <laughs> to read about girls doing big set piece fights. I mean, that was the era of the Matrix. And it also just gotten super into like Hong Kong Kung Fu cinema. And all I did was imagine big Kung Fu fights. You might not. Tamsin ended up dropping out of high school. She says she wasn't a good student. She'd been put in the class for the, quote, stupid kids. She said she spent most of high school dyeing her hair, shaving it ways nobody liked, sitting in the back of the class, her eyes glazed over, daydreaming about big martial arts fights. She came out in high school, in a small, conservative New Zealand suburb, a different era. And, you know, one of my best friends stopped talking to me immediately, and I don't even blame her. Like, I think a lot of people forget how dangerous and grotesque being gay was presented back at the time. She was bullied, beaten up, and to escape, she wrote stories, which is not such a surprise given where she was hanging out online. 
It's a place she stumbled on when she was about 11. You know, my dad had been on ARPANET, so was that connected with old school internet? And the internet of 1996 was just a wild frontier. You know, that was cowboy territory. Anything was happening. And, you know, I just wanted to look up cool pictures of Sailor Moon or go on ICQ and talk about animorphs and gargoyles. And I found fan fiction and I didn't look back. Fan fiction. A whole world of people equally obsessed with stories and sci-fi. To the point they were going online to write their own versions of the stories they loved. X-Files, Lord of the Rings. They fix the things they feel the author got wrong. There's tons of shipping. That is, people deciding which characters should have ended up together, and rewriting it so that they do. None of this is for money for the most part. It's just for fun. Tamsin was just a kid, but she starts publishing stories there. Stuff she never would have taken to school. It's the first place she ever published anything. The first place she ever really showed anyone her work. And I think one of the reasons I got into it initially was because it felt so illegal and faintly naughty. You know, fan fiction, especially back then, was like the dark web for nerds. Mm. You read a story and the author's note immediately says, please don't sue me. It's like punk for dorks. Punk for dorks. In other words, her people. A lot of people think of fanfic as lowbrow, embarrassing. A lot of big sci-fi fantasy writers slam it. George R.R. Martin, who wrote Game of Thrones, has said it's copyright infringement, a violation of intellectual property. Anne Rice, who wrote Interview with the Vampire, has famously objected to people writing fic about her stories. Because who wouldn't want to ship Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise? There are some writers who, like Tamsin, write fic before going mainstream. But once they make it mainstream, they might delete their accounts, delete all the things they wrote pre-mainstream days. Not Tamsin. Tamsin still loves these worlds. When the first book in the series came out, Gideon the Ninth, it was a big deal. Nominated for the biggest sci-fi awards. A review in the New York Times called it meticulous and moody, haunted by difficult and complex feelings in a wasted universe. And in all this excitement about the book, Tamsin heard about some buzz from the place where she'd always felt so comfortable, one of the main fanfiction sites, AO3, or Archive of Our Own. One day, she saw something she'd never seen before. People had started writing fanfic about her work. And I think I saw there were like eight fanfics, and I was like, oh, 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 I'm feeling a lot of different emotions, and I have to run away right now. I cannot look at even what these titles are. Why? You know inherently, starting out in fan fiction, that you are not allowed to read it if it's for your own creation. What are the reasons? So I think one of the main things is that you worry that if you read fan fiction and then you write anything that mimics anything that somebody's written about your property, like you just committed a huge cardinal sin against your own fandom. You just stole candy from the world's most important baby. You <laughs> ripped off your own fans. You are scum. Even if you hadn't meant to, there is no way that you can prove that you didn't nick off somebody else's ideas. Tamsin says that writers in general are told pretty firmly to not read fanfic about their work. There needs to be no question of where their ideas come from. Like earlier this year, a fanfic writer sued the Tolkien estate and Amazon Studios for $250 million, 
alleging they'd ripped off his storyline for the Lord of the Rings prequel. The Tolkien Trust countersued for copyright infringement. If you look up Tamsin's work on the big fix sites today, there are thousands of entries. People writing, interacting, playing around in the world of the locked tomb. Tamsin can't participate in any of it. And it kills her because, again, these are her people. And now that it's about her own books, even more so her people. Not only do they like the same books, but they are devoted to her characters, her humor, the entire fantastical sci-fi universe that lives in her head. So the people who loved it were like a custom-made group of people who could not possibly have interests more tailored to Tamsin's own brain, all milling around in one spot. Do you have questions about what's going on in... Oh, so many. I want to know everything. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want, you know, because his fandom is so deeply about shipping, you know, uh, whose faces do you want to make mush together? You know, I'm just sitting here eating popcorn being like, who do you want to make mush? Come on. Who are you making kiss? <laughs> I want to figure it out. <laughs> and then when I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that, I'm the kind of person who doesn't do anything by halves. I'm all in or I'm all out. <laughs> and I realized then that just being a writer, I kind of didn't want to interact with anyone at all. I was all about that hermit lifestyle. Oh, yeah. I mean, it seems like it must be hard to avoid. Like you're just like a couple keystrokes away, like just to quickly peek. Is it ever, is it ever hard? It's impossible. That's why most of the internet is banned. I have a beautiful program called Freedom, and I have banned myself from looking pretty much anywhere because I know I would go look. I would go look at everything. So I had to be sensible, and I banned myself from fandom. You had to exile yourself. I, I have exiled myself. I have left. I have gone into the West. That seems like it would have its own kind of melancholy. Yeah. Yeah. It's lonely. You know how I said I wanted no loneliness? I got loneliness. Wow. Yeah. Um, it, it's a particular kind of melancholy that I didn't think I would ever experience. Talking to her, somehow I couldn't help but tell her what it was like being in that world among her fans. I told her about that summer vacation I spent listening to her book together with friends. How we bought a little boat and named it Ionthe, who's one of the characters in the books, a villain. People online call her a Draco in leather pants. That boat's gonna sink. Why would you name your boat Ionthe? Your boat's cursed. We would jump off of it into the lake and yell Ionthe as we were jumping into the lake. Sorry, I don't mean to roast you about the boat. I just, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Fandom around her books, speaking from experience, it's really fun. This is what she's missing. It's like you created this whole world that would be perfect for you and perfect yeah. for your 17-year-old self. It's your own world, and you can't even post there. You've created yeah. the perfect thing for you, and you're on the outside of it. You've been monkeys poured. You've created the perfect fandom, and you can never walk inside it. Yeah, yeah. You know how Frodo says that he saved the Shire but not for himself? It's like that, except Frodo wasn't like blocking his own name on Twitter. She's also come to accept. This is their party. If she arrives, it's like the teacher showing up and trying to hang with the students. Her very presence means that no one can act normal. And she understands that. But it's okay, she says. She gets to spend plenty of time in the universe of the locked tomb. 
She's still at work writing the end of the series. For the rest of us to enjoy without her. Lily Sullivan is a producer on our show. The third book in Tamsin Muir's Locked Tomb series, Nona the Ninth, just came out in paperback. You are not who you say you are. You are only taunting hunger. Standing tall with long lost slumbers. Cue your evasive maneuvers. Steering clear. Every time I open up wide, I find myself right back where I'd Today's program was produced by Diane Wu and edited by our senior editor, David Kestenbaum. The people who put together our show today include Jane Ackerman, James Bennett II, Bea Benin, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Michael Carmite, Aviva DeConfield, Cassie Howley, Valerie Kipnis, Seth Lind, Tobin Lowe, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ryan Rummery, Alyssa Ship, Elise Spiegel, Christopher Swatala, and Matt Tierney. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Noriko Meek, Caro Perney, Taylor Britton, and McCaffrey Joji. Interpretation for Act One by C.E. Chen and Yukiko Hata. With research help from Ziyi Young, Hasaya Kawamari, Kiku Matsuo, Kareen Jeffrey, and Japanese voiceover by Tashiji Takashima. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 800 episodes for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to my boss, Ira Glass. He's recently started coaching a team of amateur bobsledders. The vibe is supposed to be super relaxed, no one's keeping score. But he's also really competitive, wants his team members to get the fastest times. You can hear how conflicted he is each time he shoves them down the track. Hurry, have fun! Ah! I'm Bimadu Wunmi, back next week with more stories of This American Life. <laughs>